Hi everyone, it's Ben Sherwood. Uh, today at COP27 is the Adaptation and Agriculture Day. We actually had quite a few episodes that cover this topic last year for COP26, but the one that we are sharing with you today was with Anne and Festo from Future Food at the University of Nottingham, talking about developing a sustainable food supply. And this is going to still be incredibly relevant and incredibly important to talk about today. Hello and welcome to Knowledge Engaged, the podcast of the University of Nottingham's Institute for Policy and Engagement. I'm Stephen Meek, the Director of the Institute. The Knowledge Engaged podcast is an opportunity to explore with our researchers the work they're doing and how it's making a difference in the world. This season's podcast have a focus on sustainability to coincide with COP26. In this episode, I'm delighted that we'll be talking to Dr. Anne Tubalik and Professor Festo Masawe about sustainability, food, and the university's future food beacons in Nottingham and Malaysia. Festo is Professor of Crop Science at the University of Nottingham's Malaysia campus and Executive Director of the Future Food Beacon in Malaysia. His research focuses on improving the productivity of food crops to create sustainable and resilient food systems. Anne is an Associate Professor in the University's Business School here at Nottingham, with a focus on sustainable development and its implications for organisations and supply chains. Welcome both. A first sight, bringing together a supply chain expert from Nottingham and a crop scientist from Malaysia might be a great example of the breadth of research and international reach of Nottingham, or even the beginning of a joke. But people might wonder, what are the connections beyond that? So before I ask you to say a little about each of your research, perhaps, Festo, I can ask you to give some of the background to the rationale for the Future Food Beacon and why it brings people like you together. Thank you, Stephen. Future Food Beacon is a platform that allows researchers as well as all food system stakeholders to work together to really deliver sustainable food and nutritional security. And therefore, really, it's a beautiful platform that allows people to work together across disciplinary boundaries. And that's why you see us working across the food value chain from basic plant sciences all the way to markets, to consumers and food waste. So it's, it's really a good idea and a place where people with different interests, both scientifically as well as people who are working with the community, can come together and find ways in which we can deliver sustainable food security and nutrition. Brilliant. Thanks. So Anne, is there anything you'd like to add? Yes, I think, you know, I'd echo what Festo just said about the, the, the beauty of this platform. I think there's a point as well in terms of interdisciplinary learning. I think we're learning a lot from each other and from the different disciplines because we may all be using, you know, the term sustainable food systems, but use it in different ways. Yeah. And it's just been fabulous to engage with my colleagues in, in the plant sciences or in engineering to figure out what they meant by, you know, sustainable food systems and what, for example, my perspectives could bring into the table and vice versa. So I think it's been a, a wonderful learning journey for us all on this as well. Yeah. And it's really interesting how, in a way, you know, there is a tendency in the academic world to work in silos and to focus on particular areas. But of course, in the real world, you grow the crops, but you also need to get them on the shop shelves as well. You need to think of food as a system and there are issues of sustainability, I guess, at every single point in that chain, aren't there? Absolutely. So maybe, Anne, I can ask you to say a little bit about your research. Yes, absolutely. As you described previously, you mentioned supply chain. So I'd say perhaps I'm a bit of a, a non-traditional supply chain person in that my background is very much rooted in the sort of social sciences broadly. 
And I do bring in a sort of socio-ecological transitioned hat and critical theory kind of lens to kind of understanding the connection between food consumption and production. My real interest is around how can we really transition to more equitable socio-ecological mm-hmm. transitions in, the, in food systems. For example, recently I've started exploring questions around food labour and the work behind the production of our food and how it's being reshaped particularly in light of, you know, the climate emergency. What are the implications? What does that mean to value food labour appropriately across food systems? And when I say food labour, it means, you know, the labour performed by the people, but also animal labour, more than human. Mm-hmm. What about valuing the work that the natural environment does for us in supplying our food? So, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in those kinds of perspectives. So very much um, a critical, qualitative, engaged mm-hmm. scholar trying to connect issues of production and consumption. Brilliant, thank you. And Festo, perhaps I can ask you to give a similar overview. Yeah, I'm obviously a crop scientist by training and my research centres around food crops and their environment. And to me, as you introduced earlier, I'm interested in improving productivity, nutritional quality, as well as value of food crops. But the focus of my research is actually around minor underutilized crops. So perhaps to understand where I'm coming from, it would be important to give a bit of background. And I, I think this background is important because of the way I've experienced food systems. I come from Tanzania, to be precise, from Kilimanjaro. Uh, so I was actually born and raised in a farming community, I would say, in the foothills of mm-hmm. the highest mountain in Africa. So my research is very much born out of personal knowledge and experience, especially in those early days, I would say, about farming, actually, and food systems. So we grew up eating the variety of crops grown in mixed cropping systems, and we ate all sorts of foods, and uh, this included a variety of plants, animals, and insects. And I actually think that that sort of background gave me this understanding that agricultural biodiversity underpins not only our food and nutritional side of things, but also our livelihoods. And I I think for me, what drives me is actually the idea of broadening our food Mm -hmm. basket uh, in a way that we will be able to sustain ourselves as well as protect our planet. And I I think that is where I come from. So my research has been mainly researching these underutilized crops and promoting their wider use as a way of improving not only food and nutritional security, but also adapting to climate change. So I think we have covered that and working Mm. across with the different partners, we have been able to see the role this species can play when it comes to transforming our food systems for good. Thank you. That's really interesting. I mean, there's two a sort of theme that comes out, I think, of both of what you've said there is, well, it's one almost of turning things on one's head. I mean, particularly in the West, there is so much we take for granted about food and food production. Yeah. And we might look at farming communities on the side of Tanzania as, well, they're marginal farming communities. It's hard. You know, wouldn't it be nice if we could all move to Western models and actually thinking, well, these are communities who are, you know, as we move to a less predictable, tougher environment, actually, you know, food resilience, diversity of what we produce you know, there are solutions there rather than that's something we want to move away from. And similarly with you, Anne, it's those things in the chain, the things in the production chain that we take for granted or don't even think about. And actually, these are all consequential if we're thinking about, well, what does a future food system look like, you know, that is sustainable, equitable, fair for communities, fair for animals or for the natural systems. Sorry, I've gone on a bit of a rant there. As you know, I can see I get quite excited by the future food. <laughs> um, I mean, are there any reflections you've got on each other's work or on that? 
Yeah, I actually, it was it's fascinating to hear your story, Festo, because I've been on a sort of reflective journey myself as to where my interest comes from, because I cannot claim actually any sort of connection with the farming communities. But I do a lot of work with farmers and agricultural communities, and I had a strong interest in food, you know, for a very, very long time. And it also stems from, you know, my background and where I grew up. So I grew up in France, in, in Burgundy, which is a region where food is a huge part of the tradition. You know, there's it's a wine growing region. The, the, the landscape is, is UNESCO heritage. And I grew up thinking about where my food came from because we had an allotment. My grandparents only made everything from scratch. We had hardly any processed food on the table ever. Meals were quite central to our daily life. So it sort of influenced, I think, my research in that way. And I think I think it's interesting that we reflect as to where our you know passion comes from because it's what drives us, right? Because we're I feel like I felt the passion from from Festo's <laughs> description, and I think his interest echoes mine in the sense that you're interested in the kind of like this diversity and how can we make things better by moving away from this kind of you know standardized dominant unidimensional sort of diets or approach to, to growing crops and I thought that was lovely because I'm interested in again moving away from the, the sort of dominant kind of view of things in food supply chains what we take for granted as you put it Stephen. Yeah I equally really get fascinated by what Anne does because being able to work from outside looking at what we scientists do is, is quite important, I think, and especially bringing in knowledge that is more providing connection to real life sort of experience. Mm-hmm. So Anne talked about uh, connecting production to consumption and also equitable way of farming uh, and actually paying labor the right uh, amount for the mm-hmm. way to do and also valuing farmers, especially small-scale farmers, we don't actually value very much. So if I can tell you, globally, we actually have this industrial agriculture that produces large quantities of food industrially and uses a lot of chemicals, for example. Uh, And in many places, if you think, land resources have been concentrated to fewer hands, but the little land that's left with the small-scale farmers actually occupy, um, and small-scale farmers here mean land, people who own less than two hectares of farmland. Uh, we call them small-scale farmers. And in fact, globally, 84% of farmland is actually under the sort of small-scale farmers. And that is fascinating because these small-scale farmers are the same people who are poor and hungry. They are the most vulnerable people. They are the, the ones who produce about 35% of the food that we rely on. But actually, if you dig deep and see them, they are poor and hungry because the global food system doesn't work in their favor. And most of the time, I think, and I put it quite nicely, it's really how we look at them and how we put the profit in front of everything else. And to me, I think it's important we refocus and think about the role of these small-scale farmers, especially because they are also located in water-scarce regions, for example, with no irrigation support system. So Mm -hmm. climate change is, in fact, affecting them more than all the other farmers. Large-scale farmers have irrigation systems. So in a way, I, I look at Anna's work and think of really a good way of connecting production all the way to consumption and also really trying to value people who are involved in that value chain mm-hmm. rather than concentrating on those major players who actually end up making money out of it and leaving those who are really involved in the whole business of farming quite poor, especially small-scale farmers. That's a really powerful uh, statement here. You know, I, it's interesting when in thinking about the run-up to COP and the things that are discussed at COP, so much of it is on the big macro issues, quite rightly, of you know, how do we control the rising global temperatures? What are the big commitments 
that individual countries will make. What are the, well, we rather hope, you know, sort of deus ex machina uh, technological solutions that will come along to help us carry on as before when, you know, I mean, there will be hopefully technological solutions that will help. But actually, we a, we can't carry on quite as before. There will be change because temperatures are rising and will continue to rise, even if everyone agrees. The tendency to think about things in terms of national contributions rather than the total global impact. I, I mean, what you've been talking about, Fester, in a sense, is exporting the costs and the consequences of climate change is going to be important. And you know, the inequality of impact compounding existing inequalities has got to be something that any, you know, sustainable in terms of livable solution has got to take into account. So I just, I, I wondered if there were things, you know, what are the things that you would want policymakers to be considering at COP and after COP as they go forward? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on your point here as well in terms of the level of, you know, kind of action but also mm-hmm. the technology angles. I've done quite mm-hmm. a bit of kind of thinking around technology recently with, with my colleague, um, Dr. Lucy McCarthy at Bristol, from quite a, well, a philosophical standpoint, to be perfectly honest. And it's we often see technology as our salvation. Mm-hmm. Ironically, yeah. I think it's interesting to look at the types of technology that are suggested. We've now sort of reached the point where we've destroyed quite a bit of the natural environment and we're seeking to make technologies to replace what we've destroyed rather than sort of interrogate the roots yeah. of the destruction itself. So I think there's a point to consider here in terms of what is the role that technology can play Mm. and what type of technology as well are we talking about because I'm very interested in the question of power so I was kind of trying to convey that earlier but I think you know power is underpinning everything in terms of our supply chains our economic systems and obviously you can't detach the developments of new technologies and advance of new technologies from power so you know it's it's interrogating where these technologies come from who wins by putting them forward and who loses because there will always be losers so how do we benefit from it Mm. in in an equitable manner what are the mechanisms of power that underpin these developments and and are there other ways you know are there other ways of thinking about things because technology can be many many things it doesn't have to be you know the 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 big tech promoted by certain you know corporate players that will be the things that will make things better um you know kind of thinking about festo's point about small farmers and the fact that we've completely devalued not just their work but their knowledge and their contextual embedding in their environment you know could we think about technologies in the sense that they're perhaps small scale they're more convivial so they're shared and they draw yeah. on the knowledge of the people who actually are kind of in, in the context where climate change is experienced i mean that's for me there you know that's that touches on the level as well and and these are the critical questions i really think that we need to address these things and 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 then i'll just make another point where i leave the floor to, to festo is that i think there's also a point where you know if we focus on the macro level we make it yes. a little bit unpalatable for everybody to actually think about how they can play a role i think we really need to build that agency in people how do we act because i don't think anybody would disagree this is important this is urgent this is something we need to to be addressing but how i mean this is what we're we're grappling with now yeah i think that's i'll bring festo i think that's a really so many powerful points in there festo yeah i think alice is very right in a way i think the discussions will be focusing on these big things Mm -hmm. and big players and those are the same people who are probably benefiting from the current system. So they will obviously develop technologies that will continue to benefit them. And I think if we are not careful, we are going to see even further marginalization of the most vulnerable people. And I would imagine that the voices that are coming from a large 
chunk of people who are actually poor, hungry, obese, which is what our food system is doing, uh, will still not be very much head up there when the discussions uh, go on. But for me, I'm really hoping that there will be discussions about food systems and how we can transform them to be more sustainable, inclusive. Inclusive is a major thing because yeah. that's what really Anne is talking about. And also yeah. become more resilient. And to become more resilient, we need to also start talking about diversifying the type of foods that we depend on. And that will mean growing different species. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have to grow, for example, in Africa, we grow lots of maize, but we could grow millets and actually get whatever nutrition, as well as resilience from economic, uh, from, uh, from environmental and climate change that those species can offer. So I'm really hoping that there will be that sort of discussion. In terms of technology, there are specific technologies that can benefit small-scale farmers and, and farmers more generally. Technologies that will allow, for example, for LA weather warning in terms of what is happening. And I think one of the things that I will imagine will dominate COP26 discussions will be mitigations. How can we stop this? We are actually forgetting that there are people already experiencing yeah. climate change now yeah. as we speak. Yeah. And I think the discussions around adaptation and helping those people now almost like nowhere. And if you look at funding, there is no funding for adaptation. There are funding for mitigation. And mm -hmm. I actually think that people are struggling now. So I'm hoping there will be discussion around adaptation measures that will then allow people who are suffering now moving from mm -hmm. one place to another to actually get back and support their families because they rely, you know, small scale farmers support about 2 billion people globally. They are a huge population. We don't want them to start moving around because that will cause a lot of other problems. So in a way, discussion should not be only about mitigation but also about adaptation and how we support yeah. people who are already experiencing uh, climate change issues now. That, you know, you look at Africa, for, for example, say there are areas where they are losing up to 100% of their crop mm -hmm. simply because droughts are wiping out everything. So in a way, that is the discussion that needs to happen. I hope that that is really part of the discussion. We really want to help people who are struggling out there at the moment. That's, I mean, they're both really powerful statements there. I mean, the danger of COP26 being about what do we need to do to make as little change as possible in, for want of a better word, the West, as opposed to how does the world move towards a sustainable and fair um, solution, which will require all of us to change. I mean, that barely does justice to what you're saying, but that seems to me to be the really powerful, you know, that is the real COP challenge. And there's a danger that we just see it in the West as how do we change as little as possible? I'm just conscious that picking up the point that Anne made earlier, which is, and which is one I also think is really powerful, is that for us as individuals in our daily lives, it's very easy to see the scale of the challenge and just basically you know, feel overwhelmed or go into denial or or think, well, there's nothing, you know, this is so huge. There's nothing I can do. What would each of your kind of tip be, you know, something that I or the listeners could do relating to your areas of research? It's a very, very good question and one that I probably don't have a perfect answer to because this is something that I'm continuously grappling with. I'm also in the middle of teaching at the moment and, and you know when you bring up these big topics into the classroom you sort of you know interrogate how you can create a sense of agency in our students you know because they're going to be part of organisations at some point in time and they're already citizens and consumers and mm -hmm. so any the choices that they make you know are different somehow. I think my point of reflection would be based on partly on what Vesto has been talking about which is the fact that we are you know, we're a global economy, no entity and no individual is an island. So everything we do 
although we understand that you know choices are constrained by lots of factors and influences and you know the choice is a loaded word has an impact right so what you choose to consume today when you go to the supermarket or whatever in terms of food has a ripple effect in terms of what happens in different geographies that are very far away from us I mean I think Festo's point about people are already experiencing you know mm-hmm. the consequences of climate change is, is really really powerful my friend and colleague Lucy McCarthy at Bristol was telling me about the podcast she listened to on, on the heat stress on people picking sugarcane and people already facing really tremendous impact on their health because of the heat stress and so you know when you buy a particular piece of product on the shelf I think it's the starting point is to ask one you know where is this coming from two is it within my context what is the supply chain looking like for that product who may be involved and then I think that's kind of starting to raise questions about our consumption choices obviously you know as you said Stephen in the west we're very comfortable with changing very little because we eat out of season and we're accustomed to do so we you know we rely on on global supply chains and people working in pretty dire conditions to put stuff on our table I think it's it's time that we start sort of interrogating these things. And, and I would hope that, you know, by doing that, people will start to reconnect with food in a sense of space and place. Yeah. Food is yeah. attached to context. And, and I think it's really, really important that we keep that in mind, that there are, you know, lots of different connections and all the little choices that we make have an impact. That's really interesting. There's obviously, you know, part of the challenge there is giving people the information so that they can have that agency, so they can make those choices. But that's great. Thanks, Anne. Festo. Yeah, I concur with Annie 100%. And I actually think that individually, we all need to think carefully about what we eat, where that comes from, and also think about the choices we make when we buy to avoid issues around food wastage, for example. Yeah. So I would imagine that the little things we can do is to buy food, which is food. So I, I mentioned earlier, I grew up eating all sorts of foods. And it actually didn't matter whether it was round or badly shaped. If you have a badly shaped tomato in the supermarket today, people won't buy it. Mm. I think we need to stop being picky because our pickiness is what is driving food loss, for example. You know, not taking something simply because a small bit of it is looking not so good according to you, but it's still food. It is really what is causing quite a lot of problems out there. We need to really think about buying things that are not seasonal. So we don't have to continue eating the same things every single time. And Anne touched on that. And I think that's important. For me, I would say we need to value local food biodiversity because sometimes that can be more available, accessible and affordable to people. And I would say more often, and we have researched this, is actually very much adapted to local environments. So when you buy... If possible, buy things that you can find from your local farms, because that will actually allow people to also grow and prosper, feed their families and things like that, rather than rely on really long chains of transportation. Sometimes these are necessary, but I will say where there are examples of local food production, we need to support those because those are fundamentally able to really support the community around that. And to me, the the message will be we need to conserve and use biodiversity. Otherwise, we will definitely lose it and lose it. We are at the moment. Brilliant. Thank you both. That's a really great practical but also inspiring way to end the podcast.
Thank you both, Anne and Festo, so much for joining us on Knowledge Engaged and for sharing your research with us. If you'd like to find out more about their research and about the Future Food Beacons on our Nottingham and Malaysia campuses, there are links in the notes to the podcast. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening.